Hi, I'm Jason. I'm John. And I'm Marquis. And this is Just, Just Getting, Getting By. A free talk forum about the creative process and the wounds that hold us back from achieving our goals. Each week, building a roadmap through dialogue with working and struggling artists about how to better manifest a successful show business career. Hey, it's Jason. This week, John and I spoke with Chelsea Davison. Marquis wasn't able to be here because he was assisting RuPaul's Drag Race Season 9 winner, Sasha Velour, with her live show, Smoke and Mirrors. Chelsea, my gosh, she is a powerhouse comedy content writer and producer who has written for several Comedy Central programs and for Late Night. We got to hear about her newest series with David Spade, which I believe is out now. Chelsea provided a simple formula for creative individuals to ensure they are manifesting a happy existence. We discussed sexism, body shaming, and the tight rope that victims have to walk to be taken seriously in this industry. Chelsea's career took off by throwing as much as she could at the wall, confident something would stick. I learned so much in an hour and am proud to know this amazing woman. This is our interview with the stunning Chelsea Davison. Chelsea Davison, thanks so much for coming. Um, what the hell are you doing these days? Are we recording now? We just started. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> Hi. Um, uh, what am I doing these days? Um, well, since this isn't coming out for a few weeks, I can uh, I can say because it'll be out by then. Um, cool. I'm uh, I'm. Uh, the supervising producer on a new uh, Comedy Central late night show called Lights Out with David Spade. Um, and it'll Fabulous. be premiering in July. And uh, yeah, it's a really cool thing. This is the first time I've been uh, in the process. I've been a staff writer before, but this is the first time getting to help like develop the show and, you know, figure out what it's going to be. So hopefully it's good. We'll see. Um <laughs> Yeah. So how long has that process been? Um, fleshing it out. Just for the past month. So the EPs were already involved. You know, they already had an idea for what the, they wanted the show to be, but we just uh, have been now, I guess, uh, figuring out the specifics mm-hmm. about okay, what is the actual format for the show? What is the breakdown of Act One, Act Two, Act Three? They knew it was going to be, you know, a, a panel show with comedians interacting with David, the host, and you know, some field pieces, some sketches, you know, all of that stuff, but figuring out, okay, what are the templates that we're going to set up and how do we do that and start, you know, kind of pitching ideas for segments and, and for things we can do. So the full writer's room starts uh, right after the holiday weekend, um, and that which will be great because we'll finally, like, have other writers and friends to, like, bounce ideas off of and start... Uh, I don't know, thinking of even more jokes and segments. So, yeah, so that's that's what I just started doing um, for the past, you know, month. Uh, before that, I had been at uh, The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon as a writer um, and left that uh, when I got engaged and moved out here. Congratulations. Thank you. That's so, so amazing. Yeah. How did you and your fiancé meet? We went to high school together. Oh, get out. Another Ohio guy? I know. Yeah. That's yeah. So, funny. so, yeah, we started dating after college. Uh-huh. We reconnected and, yeah, so he was, he's been out here the past several years. So, when I took New York jobs, he just 
chilled in LA and waited. Uh, and so then mm-hmm. after a certain point, I was like, all right, I got to move back. Yeah. So, yeah. Lovely. Is he into the industry? No, he's a video game uh, designer. Cool. Which is great. Yeah. Very, very cool job. Very different, though. Yeah. I'm yeah. sure it makes uh, for versatile conversations at the dinner table and such. And, yes. Um, <laughs> two different worlds. And we, we find ourselves as artists so often in relationship with other artists. I'm, I'm currently dating a teacher. Oh, so wow. that's a whole different world. Um, I, I think it's often refreshing just because uh, it's nice to have someone who's also, you know, funny or creative, but maybe, I don't know, I guess maybe it's just a problem with me. I tend to be at times a little competitive. Um, mm-hmm. And that's something that I really strive to not not feel that as much in my friendships, uh, but I do feel like if that were also in my relationship, it would be tough. It would be tough to never have a break from it. You know, with friends, like you can be really happy for them. And then if you ever feel yourself getting jealous, you can be like, all right, I need to take a minute and focus, you know, like set my mind straight. Yeah. Like I'm, you know, not being good. But yeah, if you're like, if it's the person, if it's your partner, it's so much harder to like, take that break I think Absolutely. or at least, at least it would be for me I know many people who do it flawlessly so yeah, sure. I don't know but I'm I'm happy that he's not involved and I'm I, a teacher sounds great <laughs> yeah, yeah I think so it's it's I get some cute stories I also get you know like these high schoolers are so mean <laughs> like you you, you forget how mean children are um, How do you center yourself when you get those like jealousy or competitive feelings toward friends? Like, do you take a break from social media for a while? Do you just kind of rem- put it all in perspective, like have an inner conversation? Like- I think, yeah, it's the inner conversation. Because mm-hmm. the thing is, um, I never feel, because it, it happens a lot. I mean, I'm sure you guys know we all went to NYU together. And there are people who are just... I mean, their career trajectory has been the stuff of dreams. Right. And that's the thing. I feel very fortunate in my career as well, but it's always so hard when you see, like, someone just got a TV show or they just sold their movie or things that you want. Uh, I never feel like, how how did they get... Like, I never mm-hmm. feel that because, like, 99% of the time, it's like, oh, that's really good, or that person's a really... Like, yeah, you almost they really always, deserve it. It's always mm-hmm. deserved. Yeah. I think the thing that I end up struggling with is then immediately being happy for them and then saying, why am I not that good? What's wrong with me that I can't live up to that? Why am I not as talented or as good of a writer or as good of an actor or as beautiful? You know, all of those things. And that's where I have to, like, check myself and be like... Just, again, those, like, very simple, basic things of, like, okay, well, you can't be someone else. So, like, (laughs) it's, you know, like, you are not that person. You don't have their life. Like, someone, you just, you you can never be them. And then also, it's not a race. Just because that has been something that, like, a mantra I've just tried to tell myself. Because there have been people who I thought were so, so funny classmates, like, who were in comedy, who I was like, this person is the funniest person in the world. And for a while, I had a job, and they were still, like, bartending, and I was like, this is crazy that I'm, like, working, and they're not. This is, they're, I think they're even funnier than I am. And, like, a year later, it would be the type of thing where, like, they'd get hired on SNL, or they'd sell a movie, yeah. or whatever, and then it's like, Oh, yeah, I should have never been like, wow, that's crazy that they're not (laughs) succeeding. And it's like, well, success is so constantly changing that, yeah, basically I shouldn't have been worried about them because the fact that I could see how talented they were 
everybody else probably could see how talented they were. And so it was only a matter of time till they did get all of those things that that they deserve. Yeah. And so now those are some of the people that I'm jealous of that I'm like, oh, they're so much farther ahead of me. Now. And I'm like, okay, two years ago. And it's like, you know, all you can do is just keep trying to do the best you can because, I mean, I don't know. I There are so many creators and stuff. I mean, I, most people who are successful, I do think, tend to start earlier, but not always. I mean, and that is the thing that I find very good to know and to remind myself of it's like yeah maybe I won't sell a movie till I'm 50 and that would be awesome like I would love to be a 50 year old who just sold a movie like I would love to be a 60 year old like those things you know the guy who wrote the king's speech was like 80 or something it's like <laughs> you know I don't know it's, it's just there's there's no timeline yeah and there's some amazing careers that have started late have been on this delayed trajectory yes yeah. or you can be an actor for 20 years and then decide you want to write and then you know there are people who have then incredible you know careers in different ways or like you know, this weekend I'm going to see Booksmart and I'm hearing it's great. And I'm just like, holy shit, Olivia Wilde is a director now. Like, it's so cool to see that everybody has so many talents and so many different facets and some of those things they maybe didn't even get a chance yeah, to show off. has never been as possible as it is right now. Yeah. So anyway, so that's where I try to just be like, yeah, yeah maybe I won't, you know, just because I don't get my own show now doesn't mean it will never happen but also even if it doesn't happen that's okay like I don't know I also look around a lot I think this has been a helpful thing as I've been getting older is like I've met people who more people who have really fulfilling great lives and they're not famous they're not super rich from their art but like you know, they have a really fulfilling relationship or a great family mm -hmm. or, you know, those things. And I don't know, I, I just feel like I try to remind myself of like, am I happy? And it's like, yeah, I'm really happy. It's like, great. That's better than so many people can can say. So like, as yes. long as you're enjoying what you're doing in your life, then you, yeah. yeah. So those reality checks of like, okay, take a second to be grateful. Take a second to, yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I try to remind myself that there's, plenty of room for everybody at the top like that it's not like one or the you know one person and not me like yeah. and to use it as encouragement like if people who have similar background as me are succeeding wow that means that my potential is that could happen for me as well like motivation to work even harder and that it really is that thing once someone clicks in with their truth with what vibes with them like they're working in alignment with their inner voice it's like that's when things all start to align and come together so it's kind of just like well how can I move toward greater alignment with my <laughs> with what I want to say you know yeah so when you were at NYU you were studying acting mm -hmm. what studio were you at? I was in Meisner for the first two years at that mm -hmm. point it was just a two-year program right. and then I did classical okay uh then I did the, the Shakespeare Yes, so, so classical is, yeah, the year of Shakespeare. Then I did um, the Amsterdam program through ETW, yeah. uh, that summer program. Yeah. And then I did a uh, semester of Stone Street, which is the film and TV right. thing. Which I regret not doing. <laughs> That's, that was a it, really good launching pad when a lot of them weren't 
the great launching pads. They were great yes. craft builders. It was like a different set of skills and something that I wish we had known more about earlier. Like the fact that I learned how to slate that late. I'm yeah. like, oh, I should have learned how auditions work year one. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. It's, it's a lot focused on the art and not the industry. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think you need both. I think you're right. So when you graduated, did you try to act? No. No, I, um, I very quickly realized, so my senior year I was working, um, I was an RA and I was doing work study and, uh, working in the mail room at the building Mm -hmm. and I got a job as a, um, blogger at this like startup and I got $10 an article. So I was working as a writer doing that. And then the summer after I graduated, I got a job as a census worker and so which was a great job because it paid like $20 an hour which was huge but I was working so many jobs for my senior year that I felt like just so burned out and overwhelmed I got a a one bedroom for the summer with uh, three other friends. So it was four of us in the one bedroom. Not uncommon in New York. No, I mean, it, but we were only paying like $400 rent. We were all just like sleeping on like mattresses on the yeah. ground, all in, you know, the same area. I mean, it was like, I'm like, I look back and I'm like, that's crazy. But yeah, it's so You know they so market common. it now? Like uh, there are companies that come in and um, uh, I met this woman that works for one that they purchase up a whole building of one bedroom uh, property, uh, one bedroom apartments, and they do like a matchmaking service and they turn them into three person living. Wow. But they're like, like, but you know, our algorithm will ensure that you won't be stepping on each other's toes, even though it's impossible not to step on each other's toes because you're (laughs) three girls living in a one bedroom. (laughs) Uh, But, and and they charge them out the ass. I mean, it's, it's, (laughs) this is the, this is where New York is at now. So. Wow. Yeah. No, I, luckily it was with the other three of the other RAs so yeah so we we knew each other but so like the two guys slept in the living room me and the other girl slept in the bedroom and just doing that I became very much I was like I want to be an artist but more than that I want to be not poor (laughs) like I was like the finance the stress I feel not knowing like Okay, like having to work 80 hours a week and trying to manage, balance all these different jobs and trying to make rent and having to live with so many roommates, I realized to me that life was not going to make me happy. And so there are people I know who are like, yeah, I don't care if I'm working three jobs. As long as I can get on stage, I'm happy. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel that. And very quickly I was like, oh, this is not the right life for me. And similarly, um, that summer after we graduated, uh, several of my friends were getting auditions for summer stock and and tours. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I remember thinking like, God, I would never want to do that. I would <laughs> never want to go down to Williamstown and like do Shakespeare for a summer. I would never want to go on tour with a musical. And again, that was like a reality check where I'm like, oh, I shouldn't be an actor. <laughs> like, <laughs> I feel the same thing now when, you know, I like doing stand up. I think it's fun. I think I'm decent at it. But when then friends are like, I'm putting together my own tour, I'm going to like go on, I'm going to do a college tour and then I'm going to string together like a bunch of clubs down the East Coast. I'm mm-hmm. like, that sounds amazing. You're a real stand up. I'm not. I never want to go on tour. I never want to do that. And so it just, again, it's like more than 
anything just figuring out what type of life I wanted. And it was just very much like I realized I needed to be creative, but I didn't necessarily need to be a performer Mm -hmm. or I didn't need to be, I don't know, even in the entertainment industry as long as I was being creative every day. Mm -hmm. So that's where for me then I sort of moved. I was already doing writing at that blog and sort of started doing some other things at that startup like for a little while, I was doing graphic design for them, kind of trying that out and realized, no, I don't like that. No, I don't want to just be a blogger. I want to, you know, so I tried things and found advertising. So I went into advertising for a couple of years um, as a copywriter and found that was a really great balance between you can make a lot of money. And so you have stability. I didn't have to have roommates. I could do that. A great day job. Uh, and it was creative. I mean, I got, I was writing scripts and I was pitching ideas and working with artists and, you know, it would be new. And I, you know, I could be, I was a freelancer for a while. So it would be, I would work at one place maybe for three weeks. I'd take two weeks off. Then I'd work another place for a month and get to know new people. And for me, that was really, uh, a great way to just, yeah, have a life. And Mm -hmm. then during that time kind of realized like, Oh, you know what? Now I feel like I have enough of a safety net. I could have a totally great life doing advertising. So I might as well now try for comedy because that's something that I'm really drawn to and I really love. And if it ends up just being a hobby and I just still am just like a funny copywriter, (laughs) that sounds great. I'm like, but if it works out, great. And, And I was very fortunate and, you know, spent a lot of time trying to work on that, that comedy did end up you know, kind of becoming my career and I was able to leave advertising. But I think those things of, I don't know if there are people listening who are still in school, finding those, uh, if you can find survival jobs or find a career, not that you should totally have a fallback, but like, again, just focusing on like, what is a decent life Mm -hmm. that you're like, oh, I, I could do this forever. I mean, that was the thing that was nice about it. I'm like, it, I could have done that for 20 years and been happy. And then if I got successful 20 years from now. But I know friends that, you know, have asked me like, oh, if you would be a waitress for 20 years, but at the end of it, on the exact 20-year anniversary, you're guaranteed to support yourself through acting. And uh-huh. you'll never have to look back. I always said, no way. I would never do that. I would never give 20 my year, twenty sacrifice. years of my life to something I hate mm-hmm. in order to then be a star later. You know, I was like, no, it wouldn't be worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's the thing that whatever that job is that you were like, yeah, I could do this for 20 years and I would that would be totally fine. Yeah. Then I think that's the right move. That's some of the most precise uh, advice we've heard. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's... it's um, formulaic <laughs> it is and it's, it's exactly what listeners that are in the position of being uh, new to the industry or still in their training need to hear I think um, it's what I need to hear <laughs> it mm-hmm. is, you know um, I'm currently selling real estate and writing a book like I, I mean I can't sell real estate for too many more years oh, okay you know? yeah I mean, I mean, I've only been thing. doing it less than a year but and I know I it's not it's not something that but I know I've happy. met improvisers who like you know do sell real estate like in New York yeah and I mean they have like a pretty good life you know mm-hmm. like they make enough money to like have a good thing they do improv at night and it's like yeah if they ever get cast in something like they'll be great but like in the meantime yeah. They love it. But yeah, it sounds like it's not the case for you. No, <laughs> you should not, find not a different. Not in the long term. <laughs> yeah. you know, not, not on the 20 year. Not on the 10 year. Not on the 
Mm-hmm. Um, so you're, um, you're still trying to get through your chronology here. So how do we get to uh, late night? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I, like I said, I was doing advertising. Um, I made a New Year's resolution in 2013 that I was just going to like try to try to dive into comedy. Just try to say yes to everything. Try to take take risks. You know, whatever. I was just going to try to do whatever I could. So I, I started a um, a blog where I would write stories and illustrate it. Um, it was called What I Fucked Up. And it was just like stories of things I'd done wrong and funny things from like all points of my life. And I had some guest contributors. Ooh, can you give us an example of one? That you uh, things I fucked up. Yeah, um, fucked up. Uh, yeah, yeah, things were like... Um, uh, trying to sleep with my older brother's friend just because he was my older brother's friend and uh, then s- slowly discovering that he was uh, such a douche and, you know, things like that and just being like, oh, no. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. um, once I was, like, in the situation, I was like, oh, I've made a huge mistake. Things like that. Um, when I was a kid, I uh, all the, like, Bill Clinton stuff was happening, and I learned what blowjobs were, and then I went to my little cousins who were several years younger than me and, like, sat them down and, like, told a bunch of six-year-olds, like, I'm going to teach you what blowjobs are. (laughs) And my family got so mad at me, of course, but I was, like, eight, and I was, like, I'm cool and I know things. She just whipped your hair back. Yeah. So so just, like, things. I got an in-school suspension for a note I wrote that I was, like, trying to be funny to my friends and like said a bunch of really horrible things about all the teachers that I thought were really funny and then my friend dropped the note and it was found by a teacher (laughs) so like just a lot of things throughout yeah making a a comment uh, to someone who I just met about um her dyed red hair and her being like really embarrassed and horrified because she didn't want it known that she dyed her hair but I felt like Chelsea has I have red, red hair. hair and I feel like I really tell when someone's like like oh like we're redheads and I'm like yeah and like made some joke about like <laughs> like you later in life or something and she's like what and I'm like because you die it and she's like what I'm like uh-uh. Uh-uh. <laughs> like in front of people and they're like you dye your hair huh and she's like I mean uh, and I'm like oops <laughs> um so, so when did you realize that you were a comic like would your parents tell you oh my god you're gonna be a comedian like no, when did no. it all click for you I mean I just Sounds so, like I, well there were you things, were kind of a class clown uh, a little uh, bit growing up like yeah I there's mean, evidence yes I did a I my uh, friend and I in high school we started an online web comic that we that we wrote and illustrated and that same friend and I hosted a monthly oh you know Nicole Nicole, Nicole Purcell. Purcell you know mm-hmm. yeah uh, we hosted uh, a monthly performance night at school um um, at our high school oh that God. where we would do usually like comedy sketches or make comedy videos. So um, I, looking back, I'm like, oh, I did do a lot of comedy as, you know, throughout my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, at NYU, I did not think comedy. Like I really wanted to be a serious actor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was very much when people, I don't know, were like, so what comedy or drama? I'm like, everything. I want to be versatile. And like, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's just very... 
that. Um, I took a class at NYU. It was a um, theater studies class, you know, that we had to take. Yeah, um, liberal arts. Yes. Add-ons. It was called Comedy in New York. Ooh. And uh, it was a fun, easy class where you just like read Dorothy Parker and, you know, Todd Berry and, you know, all these things. And then uh, at the end of the class, you could do stand up. And mm. it was optional. And I did it. Uh, it was a great, Rachel Bloom was in the class and did it. Miles Teller was in the class and didn't do it. And I mm. was like, if you can't get on stage, good luck being an actor. Yeah, right? He was famous six months later. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but that was cool just because then having to write five minutes for that of jokes was really terrifying and uh, gave me a big, uh, you know, adrenaline rush that I had not had performing in a long time. And so that was sort of an awakening of like, oh, I could do this. And so after that, I did stand up a couple times as an RA. We had like RA nights and stuff. And I don't know, slowly uh, just decided that I would try doing it more. I started doing some some shows through friends, some some of my other friends uh, at NYU, like Anna Dresden had uh, a show at Eastville, mm-hmm. and I did her show, and um, maybe at that point it was at the Grizzly Pair, actually, and I did that. Um, uh, Jack Moore was doing stand-up for a little while. Like, there were several of us who were kind of, like, dipping our toes in comedy. Yeah. I started taking UCB classes and doing improv and kind of doing all that, and so it just kind of became a fun hobby uh, for a couple of years after graduation. And then it wasn't until, um, like I said, that New Year's resolution, mm-hmm. um, uh, my friend, another NYU guy, Matt Gehring, who was doing comedy stuff, he hosted a show at The Pit. Um, Doesn't well, he still do this? Yeah, he still does stuff everywhere. Yeah. He's like one of the most prolific creators that I've ever yeah. met. Like, I feel like every month he has a new show. Yeah. Uh, He and I just wrote a play together, uh, like, a month or two ago. And he had to, like, he was already going to be out here because he was working on a different, like, show out here. And I was like, your life is crazy. It just works, (laughs) works, 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 works. Hopefully, eventually, he gets the recognition for all of his work. Yeah, we were just talking about him this morning. yeah, Yeah, he's someone that I'm... Is one of those people that I mentioned that I'm like, how are you not like yeah. huge for all the amazing work you do? It's coming. It's coming. Exactly. Um, but he did a, sh- a show where it was like you have to do impressions and a story and stand up and all these different things. And I'd never done an impression before characters. Ooh. And so I tried to learn one for that show. I did Lena Dunham and it was really like fun. And I was like, oh, I don't know, whatever. I should just like put shit out there. I should just like try stuff. So I rented a camera and filmed it and uh, filmed that little sketch and put it online and it went viral and I got agents off of it. Wow. And it. it was just like an overnight thing. And then what was great about it was then the agents were like, Hey, like, do you have any other writing? Do you have any of the other samples? And because then I'd been kind of dabbling in comedy for the past couple years, I was like, yeah, here's a web series I was going to make. Here are the scripts for that. Here's my blog. You can see all of that. Here's my... Unintentionally building the body of work. That yes. That would serve as uh, verification yes. for who you are. Yeah, yeah. It's some stand-up clips. It was, it was a great thing. So that, it opened some doors. That said, in retrospect, there were so many things that I wasn't ready for in that I had meetings and, you know, like they set me up with some meetings at some networks that were like, hey, we, that was really funny. We have some shows that, you know, we think you could be right for. Like, do you have a pilot? And I was like, nope. <laughs> and they're like, hey, yeah, do you want to, you know, like, we'd love to see your sketch packet. And I was like, 
I don't have that. So there were a couple things at the time that I, I wish I could have used those opportunities more than I did. But again, you know, it's just where you are at that point. I was, it was lucky that it happened when it did, which is early on. But I also am like, it's also very lucky for those people who maybe don't get an agent and don't blow up until maybe they've already been doing comedy for so long, because then it really does feel like an overnight success where it's like, yeah, they have a pilot, they have a feature, they have all these things just ready to go. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it's better for discovery to happen later. But putting the key in the lock was really uh, releasing something on the internet. Absolutely. I mean, and yeah. our first, we, we when we sat down and decided what this was going to be and we were talking about our own, this being the podcast, um, we were talking about our own experiences and what's held us back. Um, a lot of what we talked about was like, well, we, well, we thought we were better than YouTube. We thought we were better than, than some releasing something for free, you know? Um, and time and time again, talking to people, we learn like, well, I just threw this out there and (laughs) and, oh my gosh, next thing I knew I was in a writer's room. Right. That is how it happens. Don't hesitate to put your shit out there. Yeah. I mean, it was really, uh, it was actually, there was another person at NYU who I will not name, um, but uh, they had been making some things, and I'm trying to keep this as vague as possible because mm-hmm. I like the person a lot. Uh, <laughs> their work at the time, and I think they're fantastic, but uh, they were releasing a bunch of things online that uh, the quality was hit and miss. They'd release something that was really good, and then the next four things would be basically unwatchable. Mm-hmm. It was so bad. But the one good thing got them a job. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? Oh, my God. Just by throwing shit against the wall, if yep. anything sticks, yeah. no one cares that you had some other bad whatever. It's all that matters is they're like, that's re- that's a really cool idea. That's really funny. So that's why that was literally the inspiration for me, that friend, and being like, well, if that person is, like, not afraid to release bad stuff, like, I can put stuff out. And I have also, like, for that one Lena Dunham video that did really well, I mean, I released probably, like, five other impression videos that, like, Who else did you do? weren't great. Uh, I did Adele... I did Jessica Chastain. <laughs> yeah. I did. Um, All you have to do is like a look, really. Yes. That hair. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had done um, Lena Dunham auditioning for Zero Dark Thirty, so then I did Jessica Chastain auditioning for girls. Yeah. As like a little companion <laughs> thing. Um, I did Kate Blanchett. Uh huh. Um, that might be it. I don't know. I just those were kind of the main ones that I like put together a video and was like, all right, let's see and. Did you ever Nothing hear from happened. Lena Dunham about your impression? Yeah, she tweeted about it, okay. and I responded and was like, hey, I'd love to chat with you. And yeah. she did not respond to that. Uh-huh. <laughs> but it was cool to know she watched it. That's great. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, but so just, yeah, not being afraid to, like, put stuff out there even if it's bad because yeah. it doesn't Failure's matter. Failure Even the blog, it's like I put the blog out there. It was, I think some of it was really good. I think some of it was not that good, but like it didn't really click. It didn't take off. I did it for almost a year. And then I was like, okay, well, clearly I don't think this is the right vehicle. Mm -hmm. And I think that's another thing that like, I don't know, I would encourage, and I've said this on other podcasts, but like, I think there are some people who get locked into one thing. Obviously you should do what you love, but like there are some people who do improv for years and 
it seems like maybe if it doesn't really click, it's like, just try stand up. Maybe that's your thing. Or like for me, like I was doing stand up and it was like, fine. And then I did characters and impressions for the first time and it clicked. Mm. And it's like, I kill harder doing characters and bits on stage than I've ever killed doing stand up. Mm. And so it's like, not, I don't know, finding that thing that works for you. And similarly, you know, a friend of mine is a really, she's so funny. She's written a couple pilots that just like haven't really hit. Like no one's really getting like, yeah, it's okay. And now she's writing this feature and like anyone who reads the first, like the start of the feature is like, holy shit, this is incredible. And it's like, even as a subtle shift like that, it's like a different tone or experimenting with a different format. I mean, maybe podcasting for you guys, you know, I've just seen so many friends who try a new medium to just be like, hey, maybe this is the best vehicle for my voice and my art. And sometimes it just clicks. And also if it doesn't click, then it's not a failure to like walk away and be like, ah, well, that wasn't it. Yeah. Because I don't know, you still learn from the experience. Mm-hmm. What was your experience working on Late Night? Uh, late Night has been, I mean, it's been a lot of fun. I mean, it depends on the show and all of the shows I've been on have been fairly different. Yeah. You know, obviously... Um, uh, at midnight was kind of my biggest start. I mean, before that I'd been on a game show network network show, but that was trying to be like a late night show, but right. wasn't, I mean, it's the biggest thing in late night is just learning to write really fast because you have to be like in the, in the writer's room, you have to be pitching, you have to be doing bits. It's all just kind of being confident to riff with people. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest block I think is just people not being confident and not, you know, just going for it and having fun. But then the actual technical part is just speed. It's like, hey, go write this, you know, like at the opposition. I mean, there were days where it was like when we first started, if you were assigned, you know, we'd have the meeting, we'd pick topics and then it's like, cool, you and someone else like go off and write a seven minute opening. And it's like, and you have an hour. And it's like cranking out seven to eight pages of comedy in an hour I mean, it would just be such a mad dash that would be on TV that night. Or, I mean, like at Fallon, you know, just in the morning, like sometimes, you know, you'd be working on a pitch and, you know, a script or whatever. And then it's like, oh, oh shit, I have to have like around 20 jokes due by 11. And just being like, okay, I have 45 minutes to write 20 jokes. Let's do this. Wow. And just having to crank those out. And that's just more of uh, just being able to get up to that point where you're just like, I know I can just crank out jokes. They may not all be the best jokes, mm-hmm. but that's fine. Have you ever been in the position where you've pushed for something so hard because you know it's funny, even though the others in the room aren't on it, on board with it? Um, I think not. Not if I like pitch something in a room and it doesn't get feed. Like if people are like, eh, then then no. You always surrender to to the reaction. Yeah, just because it's, like, jokes and ideas are kind of cheap. Like, you know, if someone... Like, in the same thing that, like, if you have a script and, like, someone doesn't like a joke, like, if if that's an opinion you trust, then, like, just change the joke. Kill the joke. Unless... Uh, unless it's, like, your one precious joke in the whole script. But, like, otherwise, just change it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say there have been some times where there's a you know, like a sketch or something that some people are on board with. And so it like moves through 
a couple rounds and then someone will be like, I don't know. And at that point, because there's already momentum and I know other people see it and that then I have been like, okay, well, what if we change it a little bit? Or what if we, you know, then I'll try to kind of fight for it. Yeah. Because it's like, I know there's something there, but unfortunately sometimes still it just doesn't happen. How involved are the late night personalities, the hosts, um, with the writers? I mean, Jordan. Yeah, uh, it really depends on the show. I mean, like, Jordan, you know, that was his first big show, you know, his own show. So he was there... Before we got in in the morning, he was in every writer's room meeting. He was helping pick graphics. I mean, I don't know how he slept. He was involved in every bit of it. He was in the rewrite room. Everything went through him in right. his brain. And I apparently that's sort of like how Jon Stewart used to do it. Right. And it was – every word was basically Jon Stewart. Like the writers would write something and then Jon Stewart would rewrite it to be Jon Stewart. Um, so – I think from seeing that, that I think that affected some of the people. Like I've heard Colbert, at least more at the start. I think now he has a new showrunner. Right. And so it's not quite as hands-on. I don't think it's healthy to be necessarily that hands-on. But um, a lot of those people who came from The Daily Show are that way. That said, um, other hosts, you know, like Chris Hardwick is very good at like riffing and so would make things his own and would obviously riff a lot during the show. But, like, he wouldn't be a part of the morning meeting where we were choosing what stories to write. Mm. And you know what I mean? Like, cause, I mean, that's also partly that he was hosting, like, three other shows at the time and had nine podcasts. So it was like <laughs> he just he didn't have time to have one show take over his life. So I think the hosts are kind of are as involved as they can be. I mean, Fallon... It, again, puts his own spin on things like some so many of those act outs and impressions, and yeah, it does yeah. you know come yeah, from in the rehearsal. Know. He kind of just like embodies things, and he's so good at impressions. But then, you know, people ask like, does he write the jokes? It's like, no, <laughs> no, he's busy. <laughs> that said, sometimes in the morning, like in a meeting, you know, when he can make it, he might have an idea of like, hey, I saw this really funny clip of, you know, Jared Kushner giving a press conference. I think we should do a sketch on that. Like, yeah. let's figure it out. Like, I think we should do something. He'll riff a little bit, you know, get a couple things so it's clear what his vision is. And then it'll be like, you guys, go write that. So, you know, often the hosts will have, you know, the ideas, they're part of the process. But, like, he, again, he's someone who's so busy that he can't actually write it. Like, he doesn't type anything. So I'm curious how much rehearsal goes into those types of shows. Because, uh, you know, when you see John Oliver's show, obviously he only does one a week. And yes. it is so fucking tight. Yes. That I know, without a doubt, from being somebody who has trained, that that's very rehearsed. But when you're doing one every night, how much rehearsal time do they get? I mean, so... Yeah, we do a run-through. I think Fallon is the only one I've been on where there there's an audience for the rehearsal. Okay. And that's mostly for, like, the monologue. They rehearse things like thank you notes and uh, uh, any, like, superlatives, any of the big things where there's a big bucket of jokes. And same with the monologues. Uh, anything, yeah, where there's a ton of jokes, they'll rehearse it in front of the audience and do twice as many jokes as will ever be on the show and then aggressively cut things oh. and only use the things that, really kill okay um which which is smart and makes sense yeah. um but it is always tough if it's like a day where maybe it's like it's raining or something so the audience is kind of grumpy and then you end up like killing everything and it's like <laughs> oh no we have to write a new show um all the other shows i've been on 
have not had someone there, have not had audience for the rehearsal. And it's more about the host uh, getting comfortable with either like the cue cards or the prompter, you know, having the graphics come in at the right time, you know, kind of going through it for the elements um, more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Nice. Do you have any destructive habits that you've had to deal with as a creative person? Um, I mean, this is, I don't know how much this, I don't know. I'll just, uh, it's always like weird. Cause you know, I'm like, well, I don't know. I'm not like, I don't know. Uh, the only thing that I think is my like biggest self-destructive habit in general in my life is just, uh, food. And that, uh, which it's fine. I, I, you know, I don't know. I hate to say these things because I also am very self-conscious. You know what I mean? But it is the type of thing where like, even at Tish and I was at that point 40 pounds thinner than I am now, maybe 50 pounds. You know, I was like a size eight at NYU and I was still by far the heaviest person in my studio. And I think pretty much every studio I was ever in. Um, And I look back at pictures and I'm like, wow, I really wasn't heavy. But in my head, I was so fixated on the fact that I was so much heavier than all these like beautiful actors around me. And it was such a thing. And, you know, now I'm like a size 14. And so, you know, actually chubby. And there's always part of me that is like, oh, if I had just, if I had just been able to, or even now, if I could just get down to, you know, the right weight or the right whatever, would my career be different? Would Mm -hmm. I have had more success as a performer? Which again is a silly thing because like I I got Mad TV and I was like the big girl on Mad TV. Like, you know, it's, I can do Adele impressions and Melissa McCarthy. And, you know, I do some of these impressions partly because I am not super thin, but there is always something that I have felt, um, at times, I don't know why it has been so hard for me to do the thing that I'm like, if it's good for my life and it's good for my career, why can't I just do that? Or why can't I stick with it? Or, you know, why do I self-sabotage? I'll like go on a diet and start working out and I'll lose 10 pounds and then, you know, I'll say, fuck it and I'll game it all back. What did you think of Eddie Bryan's show? I love it. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's great. And I don't know, that things like that, I think she's very inspiring. Yeah, Shrill on Hulu. I mean, I don't know. There are so many people who I see them succeeding. I mean, honestly, Lena Dunham, like even though I did that impression of her, uh, the first time I saw her naked on screen, I mean, it was like a visceral reaction for me because I did not – I mean, this sounds stupid. Like I didn't know it was allowed, like that someone could look – and again, she wasn't fat. Like you look at her and she's like – a very normal looking woman. Like mm-hmm. I've uh, so many of me and my friends look like that, have looked like that. And yet I just was so shocked that she could be naked and like have a little tummy or like have yeah. f- show folds or anything like that. And it was just truly, I don't know, like liberating. It, it was the first time that I was like, Oh, there's no rules. Like there's nothing that says I can't be, I don't know, something like, I don't know. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think though all those people who are succeeding and doing, it, and I think there has been more of a sea change in recent years, you know, in terms of 
I mean, definitely with like diversity, you know, having more people of color, having more LGBT people, and also I think more people of different sizes and and abilities, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, showing people in wheelchairs and showing people, uh, you know, who actually are autistic and anything, trans actors. Um, But I do think for a long time, yeah, it just was a thing that it's like, yeah, if you're not, if you're not skinny, like, fuck off. And I think, I don't know, uh, unfortunately, I do still think that there are some things that are still not as much, I don't know, open to any of these marginalized Well, have you experienced misogyny out there? I mean, sure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What woman hasn't? Right. I mean, the thing is, all the, like, writer's rooms I've been in have all been, you know, great in terms of it's a lot of, liberal, woke, L.A., you know, comedy people who are really, you know, great. Um, That said, I do think so many things are ingrained in the same way that I'm sure I'm a woke L.A. comedy person and I'm sure I unintentionally say racist things. Yeah. Because how can you not? You know what I mean? It's like it's an ingrained systemic thing. And in that way... There are also many awesome, loving, wonderful comedy guys that, like, when you're at times the only woman in a room, I, I, I think it's things that, like, yeah, there's, like, sexist stuff or double standards or things that are said or done that are not meant to be, that, that are just not even, that are, they don't even know. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that, like, I, I would never, I guess, hold that, like, think less of them. Do you them. let them know? Not usually, no. Okay. Because I do think maybe this is just, like, a bad part of the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and I mean, I can't imagine, I, I'm sure people of color and, you know, every other more marginalized group has this to the nth degree more than, you know, a, a white lady does. But, um one of the biggest things in a room is just, can you hang? Right. And so if you become the person who says like, Hey, that's fucked up. Mm-hmm. Like then no, you can't hang. And it's a tough thing. And it's like, people aren't going to want to have you in the room and you're shutting yourself off to more opportunities mm-hmm. versus if you can just let it go and be like, whatever, that was dumb. Or, you know what I mean? Yeah. And just let it go. Then, then you're cool and you get to, live another day and eventually you get more opportunities to create better rooms. You know what but I it mean? Is a sacrifice, right. is it but it but it is. I don't know. There was uh there was one moment I was on Mad TV and I was doing a scene and there was this uh actor who was like a guest actor who came in and I we had to do this thing and I was um uh we were like improvising or something and I had to like sit on his lap and do something and his like improvising, I like sat on him and he said something. He's like, oh boy, we got a big one. Like you eat a lot of bacon, don't you? And like, just started like, like never, we had not interacted, like just really like going in and made me feel like shit. Cause I like, it was, the scene was not about me being chubby. The scene was not about any of that. It was completely unrelated to what was happening. It was just wow. like, I don't know, things like that, that I'm like, and also this actor was much chubbier than me, but he was a guy. But, and that's the thing. And I was like, you know, the one like bigger girl on the cast again, 
a size 14 is not that big. Nope. <laughs> but, you know, it's that thing of uh, I just kind of like smiled through it and, you know, kind of was like, okay, and just didn't know what to say and then got off and the three other women on the cast like ran up to me and they're like, I can't fucking believe he said that to you. Like, how dare he fucking, like, they all were there. were like, do we want, should we say something? Like, and they all had my back and... It was this amazing moment where I was like, no, it's fine. Like, you know, and we all just kind of like, you know, but it meant so much to me that like the other women were like, that was fucked up. The fact that he like singled you out and like just like went in on this thing that was not relatable, whatever. And uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I guess that's not really, I mean, it's sort of misogyny just because I'm like, well... I don't think he ever would have said that to any male actor ever. Yeah. And like that, and it is sort of the thing of like, yeah, we're not going to say anything about it. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and like on the next take, he started doing it again. And the director was like, okay, let's not do that. And like the director, you know, did that. And mm-hmm. I think caught it and that, but like, I don't know. There are always those moments where it's like, I don't know if it's that aggressive. I'm like, file away. Fuck that guy. I will never, if I ever have the chance to cast anything, I will never work with that person because I think he's an asshole. But I don't know. For the most part, I think uh, so much of the so much of the things are just very unintentional little things or things that are again like a systemic thing of like, oh, it would be funny if we get yeah, like who should we hire? Like oh, for this funny bit. Like oh, it'll be funny. Like we should get like a really like a, uh, we should get like a fat guy. That'll be funny and like. Uh, for the girl, eh, as long as she's hot, you know, let's just get an Instagram model. Yeah. And those types of moments where it's like, oh, okay. I mean, you're both casting on looks, but it's like, oh, I don't know. You know what? Maybe instead of a fat guy, let's get a skinny guy. I don't know. Let's like look at some comedian, re- like, you know, trying to find like, oh, who's a funny standup who has a funny look. Let's do it. And for the girl, it's like, it's just, is she hot? And so th- there are those moments still that I think I would never say the person doing those Making those calls is not, I, I would, I don't even think they're like a misogynist. I don't think, you know what I mean? But it is important to acknowledge, uh, because the Me Too movement has opened up eyes, but it's also, um, not broken apart what the nuances of it are. You know, it's, we, we hear Me Too and we picture Weinstein. We picture Louis C.K. taking his wang out. You know, like, like the, the really uh, obtuse moments. But there are a lot of minor moments that build the epidemic. And yes. breaking those apart with you right now, I think, is really important. So I appreciate you. Yeah, I, I don't know. Again, though, I, I have been very fortunate in that I've heard, you know, I've heard some stories of, like, you know, there are people who are, again, assholes in the industry and I don't, I feel like I've basically not worked with those people. I've like been very fortunate in that, like I haven't worked, but I think it's the same type of thing where like people are just often blind to their own, I guess, shortcomings and their own lack of knowledge. You know what I mean? they're, Mm -hmm. They're blind to their own ignorance. And I think that, uh, there are plenty of things that I am guilty of as well. And so it's hard for me to cast stones. I just think that the best solution is slowly getting toward more representation and trying to have that be, because I mean, that's the only way that then you get more people like, (laughs) 
don't know, who don't have all the same blind spots and who all, you know, think the same way. I still, I'm, so I'm hung up on the fact that I just used the word wang. Wang. I don't think I've ever <laughs> said that before. <laughs> How did that, well, anyway. I mean, so it's a you, great word. It is a funny word. Wang, dong, wang? all those uh, schlong, all the <laughs> penis euphemisms, they all have, I guess not euphemisms, nicknames, they all have that ong. Mm, the NG. Mm, yeah. Well, yeah, that is funny. Um, uh, so you are, I'm taking away from this interview that you are a master of staying happy. You, you've done that. Wow. Well. What, what <laughs> else? You. What else do you do that's not work and that's not your relationship that keeps you happy? Uh, I mean, this is such a dumb thing, but my dog. I mean, I would say like if you are in a position where you're not traveling and you can adopt a pet, um, I think it is like a cheat code to happiness mm-hmm. because it is uh, just truly like unconditional love. I don't know. Anytime I do feel like sad about the way I look, if I like fail on a diet or whatever, and like I have my dog and I also have cats, like my cat comes up and like, you know, like needs my belly. Mm-hmm. It like makes me immediately appreciate my belly. Cause I'm like, Oh, I love that. I'm soft. And my cat likes it. Like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? My dog is always happy to see me and my dog just, thinks I'm the best person in the world. And so even if I like apply for a job or bomb some interview or whatever happens, I don't know. It's nice to just have that, to just like have someone just think you're the greatest. So I do think that is, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't say I need like an emotional support animal, but I do feel very emotionally supported. (laughs) So I can't, yeah, yeah, I can't imagine. Yeah. I feel like for people who, you know, need it more. It's like, I don't know. It's, it's great. I would say that's a big thing. Um, and I personally just feel better. I I just love like making stuff. And so sometimes that means like drawing, even though like, I'm not a great artist, I'm or playing guitar. I'm not a great musician, but like, just, I like to just be creative and just make stuff. And sometimes I don't know. I find that just a really, uh, good way to appreciate I don't know, things that I can do and things that are in my life of like, I don't know, for some people that might be like exercise and just being like, oh yeah, fuck yeah, I'm strong. But I don't know, I feel that where I'm like, oh cool, I just wrote a little song. (laughs) Even if it's a shitty song, it's still, I don't know, things to be proud of Mm -hmm. is important. Absolutely. Well, I think you're great. Thank you so much for Thank you guys. Thank you so much, Chelsea. I don't know if I should have asked you guys more questions. Okay. I don't know. No, we'll, 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 we'll have our own episodes. Oh. Yeah. Are you going to interview each other? I think so. Mm-hmm. I think so. Okay, great. Yeah. Thank you again. Thank you.